I'm Will Leach, the host of this podcast, People Still Read Books. It's been a while. Has it been a, what did we miss uh, since, oh, well, democracy almost went away. Uh, there were three Wednesdays that were insane. Um, something's going on with the video game store. It's been a minute, as they say. But we are back on a weekly schedule at the very least until my book, How Lucky. Pre-order now, by the way, comes out on May 11th. We're back on a weekly schedule. So if you have any ideas that you want to come on, email us, peoplestillreadbooks at gmail.com or follow at stillreadbooks on Twitter. We are back today, I promise, weekly moving forward. I have them even scheduled for the next couple of weeks, so I can't get out of it now. Anyway, our guest today is Pete Croato. He wrote the book From Hang Time to Prime Time, Business, Entertainment, and the Birth of the Modern Day NBA. I know I said I was going to try to stop doing sports books, but we've got a couple to start out anyway, uh, just because uh, they got me back on the schedule, and they're both good. This is generally about the book, how the NBA went from being like the small market, people don't even watch the All-Star game live, to the incredible massive thing that it is now. Uh, it's a very good book, and Pete's a very smart guy. So we talk about that, and mostly I'm trying to get back on the schedule here. So we are back. Go back and listen to our David Wallace Wells podcast, by the way. That's the most recent one. That was a good one, too. But for now, here's Pete Carrada. Remind you, as always, fo- follow us at Still Read Books. Pre-order How Lucky. Hey, that's my book. Pretty good. Can find it anywhere. Got a great book from blurb from Richard Russo. That happened since I saw you last. That was amazing. Anyway, here is Pete Grotto. I'm delighted after uh, the intro I just gave, which I've not actually recorded yet, but I'm sure it was great because it's Pete and he's great. Uh, yeah, we are happy to be with Pete Grotto, who wrote the this book that I'm holding in my hand. From Hang Time to Prime Time. You're my first guest of 2021. So first off, we made it. Thank you for being proof <laughs> that we got there. That's a relief. Uh, th- and thank you for thank you for your time. I have to sell, tell you, I, I it's funny. I have a rule in this podcast because you know I kind of have a history in the sports world. Yes. And the book is you know the book is for not it, this podcast is for books in general and some mm-hmm. are sports and some are not. Mm-hmm. So I try not to do too many sports books. But yours is pretty awesome. So I wanted thank to make you. sure to talk about yours. So the general and the general premise of the book. It's something I've thought about a lot, and it is really of this notion. You know, it's often forgotten when we look and see how big the NBA is now, mm-hmm. and how not just how big it is, but how much of a part of like a central part of American culture it is. That I love, always love looking at these old stats where like the NBA All Star Game was shown in on tape delay mm-hmm. uh, three weeks after, or however long it was after it ran. And your book kind of chronicles that uh, transition from that into uh, into not necessarily all the way to where it is now, but certainly chronicling that time. And I'm curious, is this something that you'd always like, are, is, is the NBA your sport? Is this something that you always had to strike zone in? And do you remember any of the time uh, of this kind of time? You're, you're 96, right? I think you're 96. So, uh, uh 97, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're a nonagenarian. Yeah. And, um, so <laughs> the, uh, sorry, you're not quite that old. I'm just kidding. Of course. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'm curious, like, just your memories of this time or your thoughts about this time or just that early age of the NBA before it was, you know, the NBA. Yeah, you know, I I was not – I grew up a baseball fan. I was a diehard and less so now for reasons that relate to my mental health, a New York Mets fan. I was a diehard New York Mets fan when I was a kid. And baseball was my sport like for, I guess, 85 to like – 1990 1991 i mean that was the sport that i grew up watching you know i grew up watching those mets teams with daryl strawberry and dwight gooden keith hernandez and 
you know, all those, you know, all those lovable or not so lovable rogues. Uh, so yeah. So when I got into basketball in 1990, 1991, like I, I didn't know any of that history and, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't around for the Michael Ray Richardson Knicks or, you know, the, 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 the Larry Bird, the early Larry Bird days or the early Matthew Johnson days, that stuff was all sort of, you know, hazy background information. And when I got into basketball, you know, I be, like 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 before when I became a baseball fan, I read as many basketball books as I could. I mean, that's just that that's just how I am. When I when I follow a pat when I get a passion for something, I dig into I get into it. So, you know, f- for years I was reading basketball book after basketball book, and like you said, there was always these mentions of you know, oh, the finals were on tape delay, or um, you know, the NBA had a real drug problem. But there never really seemed to be a lot about those instances. It, it always seemed it always seemed to be kind of like just footnotes or a couple of paragraphs or a few pages be, before you know David Halberstam discussed Michael Jordan or you know Jackie Mack went into the bird and, and magic rivalry. So yeah, I, I wanted to know more about that about that era, which is why I, I spent you know, which is why I wrote this book. So and I'm and I'm curious too. There's so many figures of this time, from mm-hmm. Larry Bird to I think David Stern, maybe the the center of all this. But was it really just a capturing of television? Like what 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 put the league in a position uh, to kind of uh, have its kind of a meteoric rise around the time? The the story is always that it's Jordan, and it was it started with Magic and Bird, and then it mm-hmm. became Jordan. But it feels like television was the primary thing in this. Yes. Yeah, I I, I would agree with you on that. I th- I think CBS Sports. Did, did a marvelous job portraying not only the stars of the game because that was the um, the edict that CBS Sports had with Ted Shaker, the executive producer of the uh, NBA and CBS, was you know when w- for these games on Sundays, like we're going to show stars, we're going to show the games are going to feature some combination of Magic, Larry, Dr. J, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And what what CBS did aside from highlighting the stars, which was part of David Stern's. Uh, modus operandi was they they showed that they they made the game they turned the games into events so what cbs so cbs did more than just like you know again show like scott wedman hitting a 15-foot jump shot it was okay you know we're gonna we're gonna have a a really flashy for the time introduction with like computer graphics and a snazzy theme song and you know and dick stockton and and tommy heinsen or brent musburger and Tommy Heinsohn, they're going to introduce the game. They're going to present the game like it's almost a feature story. They're going to tell you what's at stake. They're going to tell you who who to look, what to look out for, and they're going to they're going to prep you for the game. They're not just going to plop you into a game and present it as a time killer. But the other thing, the, but what CBS did too was they also they added more. Per- they add they added aside from just journalistic journalistic principles, they added that aforementioned flash I was talking about. So Pat O'Brien was going to host this really personality driven halftime show where you'd see Buck Williams play the piano or you would see, uh, I don't know, you'd have a a feature on Dan Roundfield going back to Detroit for Christmas, things like that, that would kind of, again, paint the NBA as a personality driven league, which would get you comfortable with the, with the players and the storylines. And then of course, it was just how the game was filmed. You know, Sandy Grossman was, you know, who, who, who passed away about two or three years ago, you know, was known as an NFL director, but he did some marvelous work with the with the with the C, with C, with uh, the NBA and CBS because he he didn't just sh- he showed scenes like I mean you're a movie guy, well obviously I mean there are a lot of scenes I mean 
they were the MB, yeah, CBS was big on just showing drama, like Larry Bird waving a towel on the bench, or you know Michael Cooper collapsing after the Rockets upset when the '86 Conference Finals. So CBS did a lot with that, and of course David Stern was very big on that. Was you know was very big on showing the personalities of the players, showing their showing who who they were and just what made them special, and that objective coupled with cbs's coverage was a match made in heaven yeah and it's so then it's funny because obviously you know bird and magic i mean bird and magic had yes been a big deal before they even got to the nba like 79 mm-hmm. being kind of the, almost the start of college basketball even mm-hmm. uh in, in a lot of ways i'm curious that like you know, I know this is kind of a chicken or an egg thing, but like, I mean, people always like, well, Jordan really came up and electrified everything. But clearly, like, you know, you kind of talk about Julius Irving in the book mm-hmm. a little bit about how Julius Irving, I mean, I don't, he wasn't the player that Jordan was, but he was certainly the star that Jordan was, or at least could have been, but he almost came along too early. I'm curious, is, I'm just having read this and having gone through this and having watched The Last Dance, which like a lot of people, uh, I love the first two episodes. And by the end, I was like, okay, I don't know if I want to hang out with Michael Jordan. I'm glad this thing is happening. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel like I, I'm glad I got to watch him, but this is more time to actually spend in his presence than maybe I want to. But I'm curious if Jordan, let's say Jordan comes out in, uh, is, you know, uh, 81 mm-hmm. or, 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 or 77 or something in as the player that he is, but is the league ready for him at that point? See, I don't think so. And I think Julius Irving paved, paved the way for Michael Jordan because it got, it got people, it got the casual fan and it got, I guess, the general public used to the fact of a fantastic player, a championship player as a, as a soloist. You know, I think and I think that's that I think if you put Michael Jordan like right in, in like 1981 without the the without Julius Irving sort of paving the way and serving as a preface, I think I don't think it works as well. And I think that's why Julius Irving really doesn't really gets overlooked in the NBA's narrative because not only was Julius Irving, you know, again presented the presented the um, this sort of um, idea of the soloist as a championship player or this or the soloist as as a, as a great player who is going to you know win a lot of ball games, but it also pre- but it also presented it also gave the NBA an ambassador. It, it, and I think that and I think that that I think Michael Jordan, whether he knew it or not, learned probably got a lot of his cues from Julius Irving because Julius Irving was the kind of person who knew who always knew where the cameras were. He he knew how to how to talk, deal with the press. He knew how to um, he knew that to be popular that he had that he had to put in the time with the media that he had to be available for corporate things for mba for mba partnerships all of those things that you know now we now we take for granted as being part of the superstar um uh list of traits and it's funny with there's there's a great book called taking to the air by jim Naughton, which is an early which is an early um jordan biography it's very good you can get on ebay or amazon or whatever but in that book Naughton talks to Julius Irving and Irving says like, yeah, I was able to retire because Michael Jordan came along because he took over what I was. So I think, I think, so to answer your question, Will, I think Michael Jordan comes along in 81 doesn't have the impact that, that he, that he has now. Um, And I think the reason for that is Julius Irving. So that's fascinating. And it's funny too, because the other thing about the last dance that was really fascinating too is 
you know, for a lot of people, this is their childhood, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Jordan mm-hmm. is or childhood for me. You know, Jordan, he he won his last title right after I graduated from college. So yes, uh, and I I was not, I actually was not. I went to the University of Illinois. I didn't grow up with a, with an NBA team, but like if you were at the University of Illinois during that Bulls run, like every Bulls game was a social event. Like yeah. no matter what was happening, mm-hmm. you cleared out your kind of schedule for that. And it's funny to think now because at the time. I thought, wow, this is the biggest thing that will ever happen in sports. Like, mm-hmm. like it just felt like the, the the Bulls were this traveling thing. And I think now we think of it like that because it was it was, you know, we were kids and we were younger. But if you look at the things now and look how like bigger everything's gotten, like I'm curious, like I wonder what kids now, like if you're watching LeBron or you're watching Giannis or you're watching all the all these guys. You know, I I would watch Jordan, or I would watch NBA Inside stuff, or I would even play mm-hmm. the old Jordan versus Bird uh, little PC game. Oh, I remember that game. Cursor. Yeah, love and that I was, game. I was, I was I know Magic Bird was the first one, but then of course they had to get Jordan in on it. Mm-hmm. And I, but I there was there was not a time, and maybe this is part of you know being a uh, before I uh, a, a, a Gen X or I, I suppose, but like there was not a time where I thought, wow, they're marketing to me. Like they are like, I am aware of what they're doing. It was just, oh, Michael Jordan's amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Rashad must be amazing because he's Michael Jordan's best friend. Yeah. And like at a certain level, it feels like obviously they were successful marketing, but it also feels like they, like it would be impossible to market now the way that they were marketing them because we're much savvier. We're much more cynical. We're much more like, you know, the, I, we could watch a, you know, I would believe that like, I want to be like Mike. That's what I want. And now athletes almost have to steer against that. And I think it's funny that it led ultimately to someone like Charles Barkley to have like after 15, 20 years of the NBA saying, be like this, be like this player, had to be like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't. And I felt like that was less about Barkley and more like a result of that individual base marketing that you kind of talked about with David Stern. Do you think that that is, do you think this is something the NBA still does? Or or I, I, I'm curious, like the way they did it then and the way they, they had the individual players do you think that set up something uh a standard for them that there was going to be hard to live up to yeah i i think i think it's a gene i think the genie's out of the bottle and i i think a lot of it also has to do with as you mentioned before it, it's just the, the times are so different you know if, if you're an nba if you're an nba i mean with and i was the same way with jordan i mean i, I grew i mean i when in jordan's heyday i was a knicks fan but there was that same that same idea of this is an event like the bulls the bulls and jordan are an event and like on nbc on sunday like that's going to be this that's going to be your sunday or when they're playing the finals like that's going to be your thursday night or your friday night It, it is just it is so so different now because we are inundated you know you go if you go on twitter i mean there is just it is all nba it's all uh, gifs or gifs, depending on how you pronounce that. Uh, it's all clips. It's it's all takes and clips and video clips from last night. And there is a game on literally every night. You know, you you there is no waiting anymore for anything. Everything just comes to us. So there is there is. So yeah, the the, the so the idea of, of Michael Jordan or a player being an event the way that it was back then. Um, that that is just that's a product of of another era, um, and the other thing too is you know you mentioned about how I'm trying to think the pl- yeah the the player yeah I think we're also just more savvy you know we're we're even even you know kids I think are more savvy in terms of in terms of in, in terms of how they and how the players are and who they are and 
you know, it, it, it's funny. With I grew up watching Inside Stuff with Willow Bain and Ahmad Rashad, and Ahmad would hang out with Michael, and it all felt very, it all felt you know very organic and very natural. But the problem now is that the players from a very young age are not only media coached, but they also control their own narrative. You know, there's Instagram, there's there's Twitter, there are all these social there are all these social media platforms where a player can control their own message and can can show how they want to be perceived. So. The era of Michael Jordan, where we felt we knew him through these communal events, where we were all watching the same TV show or all watching the same game, that's over. And I think a lot of that has to do with just an era of the new, this new era of player of of not only how we consume these games and we consume the lives of the players off the court, but also just you know how media has changed in twenty five years. First off, it's definitely GIF. Just to be. As oh, clear thank as you. <laughs> I, I, I look. I'm a I'm a GIF person all the way. But you know, hey, I don't want to offend anybody. You know, this is my first no. book, so I'm gonna just. I understand. Know, go down I the understand. middle. <laughs> but I, and I know that we, I know that we have a uh, uh, in a world of uh, diffuse media narratives and organizations that we all have to. Uh, you never know. It, it depends on what your media source is, but it's GIF, man. I don't care what the guy invented <laughs> said. He's wrong. It's GIF. Uh, one thing that's funny too, and you know, you said you talked about being a baseball guy first. Yeah. I'm, I'm always been a baseball guy first. I'm still a baseball guy. I love the NBA. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and frankly, one of the main reasons that really finally got me, I always liked the NBA, but I kind of felt like I always admired it from afar. Uh, once I picked a team, like I, I never really had a team until I moved to New York yeah. and I picked the Knicks cause you know, they had been awesome for like 15 <laughs> straight years. So I thought this is going to be amazing. This, what could possibly go wrong? And here I am, and yes. now getting like way too excited about Emmanuel quickly. But what's <laughs> funny though is that like you think I think even when I was not like a big huge NBA fan in like high school or, mm-hmm. or like in middle school, I had a Mars Blackman shirt. Yeah, <laughs> like I had it. You know, mm-hmm. I had uh, you know so much of that was was based like I felt like I was a fan of the NBA in general as a cultural concept yes. before I was a fan of basketball in the NBA is probably the best way to put that. And I think that's telling that, you know, you talk about how we're savvy to this stuff now. And I think that's true, but I think a lot of that's because of what the NBA has done, right? They, yes. They've been so successful this, and they set this out and you took it a sport like baseball, which, you know, the, people have commented on that, like, I mean, how many players on the Lakers are better known than Mike Trout? And like, and the, and the Lakers aren't even very deep. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, and 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 I and I know, and I'm curious. Do you think, as someone that dug in, or like, because a lot of times you hear people talk about this, like, is they either they have, they fall in one of two camps. It's either the NBA is just a naturally more exciting sport, mm-hmm. and baseball is a sport of older white dudes, which is true, by the yes. way. But like, um, but the sport it's too slow. You're not going to be. A, I interviewed Chuck D uh, for MLB last week, and he and he's a big he's a big baseball fan, yeah. and he really he really pushes back against this idea that baseball is too slow. But I certainly think, particularly as culture speeds up, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's at least an argument to be made that. NBA is at least a, is a more active. My, my wife, who doesn't really care about sports at all, other than college football, while well, she will eat your brain if you say that you like the Florida Gators. Um, <laughs> other than that, she's not like a big sports fan, but she just viscerally enjoys basketball more than baseball because it's more exciting to her. So there's that idea. But then there's the other idea, which is mm-hmm. the other argument for it is the NBA has just always been so good at marketing and they've always been so good at selling individuals in a way that baseball hasn't. Uh, I'm curious, as someone that like, dug into the early days of this mm-hmm. and was able to like really see what the mindset of David Stern was, what the things they put in place were. 
I'm curious, do you do you have a side on that? Do you think baseball could have replicated this in 1983 with the uh, with Cal Ripken and so on, or do you think this is specifically an NBA thing? Oh, I, I think they absolutely could have replicated it, and I and I think I think they should have. You know, look, I'm still a baseball fan. Uh, I still, you know, not as not I'm not as deep a fan as I was um, back in the day, but I'm some but I'm somebody who enjoys the game, but. Yeah, I, I think the I think Major League Baseball certainly could have gone the NBA route and marketed stars, and they ch- they chose not to do it. It was, and again, it was, and part of it was because, as you mentioned, Major League Baseball has always ha- sort of had a very traditional way of doing things, and I think part of that is the fact that that it is its status as America's pastime, and oh, we're you know we're we're the game that your that your that your parents grew up with and your grandparents, and that doesn't fly in an era where we where we where we gravitate toward individuals and so yes i so to answer your question i really truly believe mlb could have could have done that and should have done that cal ripken jr would have been a perfect example of that the nba you know but the nba has has always has has always had, you know, understood this idea and they and they still do it and i think there's a lot of truth to that i mean I, you know especially if you don't grow up in a house with sport with sports fans, and I did not. My parents, uh, the the joke in uh, family, the family joke is that my parents, when they were buying me a baseball glove, had to ask the uh, the salesperson what hand the glove went on. <laughs> like, right. I mean that. So my parents were not were not sports fans. I didn't inherit a team. It didn't come down from my dad or my mom. So with the NBA, I gravitated toward players first before I went to a team. And I think that was a genius with David Stern in the NBA. I think they they understood that if you're a young fan, a, 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 or rather, I'm sorry, if you're a kid and you're looking to get into into a sport, you're going to be attracted to a player first, and 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 then you'll work your way into the team and into the league, and you'll 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 find enjoyment there. And that's still the case today. I mean, I I think. The, the NBA has always been a league of personalities and, you know, and, uh, and look at, I mean, and you, you can see that today because how many players do you refer to just by first names or by nicknames? Um, you know, if I say Giannis, everyone knows who that is. If I say LeBron, everyone knows who that is. Um, so, but yeah, it, it pained me as a baseball fan that the that major league baseball still can't seem to, seems reluctant at best to 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 uh to be modern or to try something different it pains me because i think it's a great it's a wonderful game it's a game that i hope i get my daughter involved in but it, it's it, it need it needs to do a lot of it needs to it needs to do a lot of things differently in terms of how it markets itself Particularly because it's actually more of an individual game than basketball is. Mm. <laughs> like, it's really kind of crazy when you take a step back from it. It's like, wait, no, this is actually, not to do the old Al Capone untouchables thing, yeah. but it's one man against one man <laughs> at the plate. And like the NBA, you know, I, I get that one player in the NBA can affect 
a game more than one player in, in baseball is. But, you know, and, and I mean, it's telling, too. I'm curious, though, because mm-hmm. uh, one thing that we're seeing in baseball, I think baseball is trying. You're Like, Fernando Tatis Jr. is on the cover of the new yeah. video game. Mm-hmm. They're putting it onto Xbox. Yeah. Like, they're clearly, like, on the margins, and they're still... It would help if they didn't have old, angry, southern white guys broadcasting, uh, being the analysts for all the games and being cranky about everything. But clearly they're trying at least to at least slowly mm-hmm. kind of move in that direction. But, of course, they're running into the cranky old southern white guys uh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, idea of this. Who not uh, – the problem is not just to – that they don't maybe they don't like it. They have their own problems and biases and and, and and stuff. But also their identity with the game is all tied up in doing things the right way and mm-hmm. so on. So I coach youth baseball and I see other coaches caring more about that than teaching the kids how to play the game. So I see that and I'm curious when the NBA started to make these changes and the mm-hmm. NBA started to put these things in, were there, uh, I guess they'd have been uh, uh, flat earthers or peach basketers uh, <laughs> maybe at the time. But I'm curious, were there, like, were there people resistant when Stern came in and said, this is what we're going to be doing? Not that it was that simple, but it came and started doing that. Were there people that were really resistant to it then? Yeah, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to think if there was one example of somebody putting, putting their foot down and saying, this is how we're, this is, I'm not doing this, or this is how my, this, my team isn't going to do it that way. I mean, the, the biggest example is the Boston Celtics because they've always been, they pro- they're probably the only they're probably the best example of a team that kind of was stuck in the in the in in the past, um, you know. But I think David Stern was so convincing, and David Stern also was somebody who had the the best interest of the league at heart. You know, I think the one thing that comes that came across in my research was uh, aside from David Stern being. Um, Sometimes a vociferous personality was that he um, was that he loved the game. He loved the NBA, and I think that came that came across that came across when he dealt with anybody. I mean, he he grew up you know rooting for the you know for the the rooting for the Knicks teams of the nineteen fifties, you know, and 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 going to games at the old Madison Square Garden. I mean, he he was a basketball fan, and he was somebody also who you know. Here is the thing too: all these changes that happened. They were out of necessity. There, you know, the NBA was very. There, there are several moments in the book where the NBA is on is teetering, if not toward irrelevancy, then toward, well, toward toward maybe even being a, being an after a permanent afterthought. So the I think the I think the owners and the general managers understood that, you know, we're have to do this because we have to survive. Like the drug policy was a matter of optics because the NBA had to look better because it didn't want to be elite. um, It didn't want to be perceived as a league of just druggies running up and down the court. The NBA had, had to adopt the salary cap because the, you know, because owners were, were basically overspending and, and going bankrupt. So all, and the same thing I think went with the M with, with stuff like NBA entertainment and halftime shows, because not only were those things, were those things necessary to survive, but teams thrived because of that. You know, if you look, if you look at the, at the at Jerry bus and the Laker girls and the whole showtime thing, that was an event. I mean, those, you know, the, the, the forum was a hop in place. The same thing with, when the, um, when the Pistons uh, built the palace at Auburn Hills, that 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 made a ton of money for the Pistons. So if you're a te- if you're an owner and you see like 
hey, you know, Jerry Buss gets, you know, when he when he puts the Lakers girls on, Lakers girls on, like, you know, they have a home attendance of eighteen thousand. Or hey, you know, the Pistons made like twenty five million dollars based on the Palace. We should really try this. Success breeds success. So I so a lot of it had to do with David Stern sort of putting his foot down, but a lot of it was also to use a tired phrase, the proof being in the pudding. And when you have those two forces, it's pretty hard to kind of be, as you said, a peach basketer or, you know, a, a flat earther. Yeah, it's certainly noteworthy that uh, the minute, like even in 1990, when I saw it do the right thing, I was like, oh, the bird guy's the lame guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the bird guy. And Larry Bird's awesome. Like it wasn't like Larry Bird wasn't good. Yeah. It was just like, and, and, it, and, and to me, that is, you know, that is, I think it's very telling uh, of the general time. Uh, okay. Well, this is the last question I ask everyone on this podcast. Yes. I'm curious. Um, when, what did you, this book came out in December? So we're a little, we're about a, a month late on, but I'm curious when you got your, this is your first book. Yes. When they arrived, mm. uh, full on, because I, you know, my book is coming out in May. Yes. And I've gotten, I got a first round of copies to send around to blurbers. Mm-hmm. And those have gone out. Okay. Uh, and then I got, now I've got the galleys. Those are about to go out. Mm-hmm. And I got the books of it. And that's exciting. It's great. You know, it's a cool, it's, it's the thing that worked on for a long time that arrives. But not, but not until the hardcover comes. Mm-hmm. To me, that will be when it's for there. I'm curious. Uh, it happened during the pandemic uh, when it happened. What was that experience like when you did the unboxing and uh, opened these things up for the first time? It was incredible. It was it was absolutely incredible um, for a couple of reasons. First, um, you know, I've mentioned this on Twitter and, and other podcasts. This writing a book was something that I, I'd always wanted to do. I think if you're a writer, that's something you aspire to do. But there were a lot of times in doing this. In, in pursuing this career where I was on the verge of flaming out. Uh, I failed miserably at my first newspaper job at a Gannett newspaper. So that shows you just how, uh, how ill uh, equipped I was. Um, I, yeah, so that was, uh, that was, I, I mean, they were happy to see me quit. So there was that. Uh, I spent three close to four years editing a trade magazine covering the supplement industry, which was, which taught me a lot about how to write long form. But, you know, when I was, I was pushing 30 and seeing that my, that my potential, whatever I had was running out, um, you know, 10 years ago, I was writing apps for a movie synopsis, uh, uh, site and getting paid $10 a pop. So there were a lot of signs, uh, telling me I should not do this, that I should go into something else that involved, less heartache. Um, but I kept up, I kept it up. And so the, so the book coming in really represented, um, a really represented, I guess, climbing the first of what I hope are many mountaintops. So I was, so when the books came in, I FaceTime my mom and dad, I opened the box, one box with them. I FaceTime my brother, opened another box with him. They were both but both those three people were very instrumental and very helpful in, in helping me get to this point. Then I open, then, you know, then I share the moment with my wife and my daughter who's four. And then I'll be honest with you, Will, I cried. I cried. I unabashedly cried <laughs> for, I would say a good 10 minutes because it was something that it was something that I didn't think would actually happen. And it still seems a little bit surreal to not only have a book, but to be talking to people uh, whom I respect about the book, who seem to enjoy it and who want to ask me questions about it. Um, you know, this is all something, this has been a very, very gratifying and a very, very, um, 
um, what's what I'm looking for. It, it's been, it's been a very special experience and I, and opening up the books was just a, um, just brought every, just was a culmination of 20 years of just falling on my face, falling on my face and finally crossing the finish line, you know, 20 years to 20 years after the fact, but still crossing that finish line. Okay. That, so I said before that the best, the worst answer to that question was David Hill. Uh, David Hill wrote a, book, a great book called The Vapors. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, but unfortunately, as he told me on this podcast, uh, he uh, it, it because it happened during the pandemic and because he was away from where they sent the books, oh, he was no. actually just watching all these other people see them <laughs> and, oh, no. and, and actually never got that experience. That might be the best one. That might be my favorite one. That that was well. That I don't I don't know if I'll if I'll weep when they come, but uh, if I were more in touch with myself emotionally, I suspect. Well, I mean, you've also it. written like five five. Yeah, books. but it's been like ten years, and like it's been ten, and like honestly, the one of the things that's been funny about this process of going through the book this time is. You know, I don't know if you, this has come as a surprise to you people, uh, everybody out there, but like the book industry's changed a lot. Last year on a book, lots of things have changed. So like everything, I'm learning everything that's it's very different now, and uh, so I, I it certainly will be satisfying. Also, this is my first like novel. I guess my I had catch, but this is I was a young adult novel, so it's very exciting to see. It'll just be fun to see. Uh, that's a good story. I'm hoping I'm not in an apartment in Brooklyn that was part of Davis' problem because uh, he got stuck behind. It will be come to my home and I will see them. And also the galleys are cool. Like the galleys themselves are kind of cool. But I'm, I'm I'm far enough in the process now that now when I look at a galley, I'm like, oh, we correct that in the actual version. Like, yeah. I don't want to show. Like I feel like it's. I'm like I'm that. Uh, I'm like uh, Axl Rose with Chinese democracy and I'm like diddling <laughs> for like the four millionth time. I'm a little in that mode. Uh, well, this book is great. And I'm really, really happy for you. Uh, this is a, a, and seems to be doing very well for crying out loud. So, so congratulations. The book is from hang time to prime time business entertainment and the birth of the modern day NBA. Uh, I, I even warmed this Knicks fans <laughs> heart. And, hey, they're good. The Knicks aren't bad. They're okay. <laughs> Who is your team, by the Who way? Who is my team? You know, it's funny. I have become sort of a a, a basketball or an NBA pan uh, polyglot. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, you know, but I, I, you know, it's funny. I just, I enjoy, I, I love just watching great players do great things. I mean, that sounds very cheesy, but I, when I lived in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is about 40 minutes outside of Philadelphia, I got into the, the early Brett Brown 76ers. So, um, you know, the Michael Carter Williams, Nerlens Noel ragtag bunch. And so I would say my team is the Sixers. Uh, and oddly enough, I got into that team because I because not only did I, I think they I, I just love the way they played under Brett Brown. But I thought their their um, I, I thought their net their their regional sports net, networks broadcast team was phenomenal. Like Mark Zumoff was is was is great. Um, Malik Rose, who's now with the Atlanta Hawks, was a fantastic color guy. And Molly Sullivan French, who um, now does uh, Raiders coverage out in Las Vegas, was a phenomenal sideline reporter. So, like, I just really gravitated toward toward those folks and the team by extension. So, yeah, I would say I'm a 76ers fan if, you know – if if I have a rooting interest, well, definitely the best thing about being a Knicks fan is that you get Clyde and Brady. Oh, I love There's those guys. No question about that. They're no great. And I will I will say this: the Nets broadcast team is excellent. I, I mean, they're they're also really good. And you know, uh, yeah, it's it's yeah. But Breen and, and and Walter just are great. I love those guys. 
The book is from hang time to prime time. Pete Corrado, thank you for your time and continue. Good luck with the book. I'm sorry we didn't get it when we first came out, but that's the thing about books. It's not like a movie release and like the <laughs> opening weekend is the only thing that counts. So it goes out, it goes out pretty well. Thank you for your time, sir. Will, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Uh, we're back. This show's back. We're doing it. Yay. I'm back on a regular basis until the book comes out in May. And then I will never do one of these again because screw it. I'm just trying to promote <laughs> that thing. I don't even like books. Uh, but next week, next week, our guest is Eric Nussbaum. Eric Nussbaum, the great Eric Nussbaum. Uh, his book, Stealing, excuse me, Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers and the Lives Caught in Between. We'll be talking to him next week. But by Pete's book, From Hang Time to Prime Time. We're back on a regular basis. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>